Dear brethren and sisters, also with us our friends and our young people. I do uh, bring with me the greetings of our brethren and sisters at the Tetrigully Ecclesia and our recording brother just before we left asked us to specifically convey those to the brethren and sisters with whom we meet. We do have a, a wonderful unity, a worldwide unity, and in these days of speedy communication, the world talks about a global village, but even within the brotherhood, that has of course had uh, wonderful blessings. And none of us would ever dispute that the true spiritual unity that we have with God and with each other through the Lord Jesus Christ, is the highest of divine ideals for which we should aim. But sometimes we strike difficulties. We have human beings. The ecclesia is still made up of individuals. Individuals who've come from various backgrounds, various walks of life. Some bring with them strengths and weaknesses, but God knows all our individual needs. And as we have seen in our previous study of the Good Shepherd, each one of us has a responsibility to each other to be both shepherds and sheep, to help shepherd and feed and guide and strengthen and at the same time to, to act as sheep towards each other, not muddying the waters as Ezekiel said, but intent that each should be well fed. But in the course of our studies we've alluded to the fact that in John's Gospel we see the Lord Jesus Christ particularly presented as the Son of God. We saw in our chart, dealing with baptism of water and of the Spirit, a certain statements like uh, children of God and sons of God. And I thought this morning we would just, by way of introduction, look at this chart and identify some of the elements there which may help us to better understand the role of the divine family. We want to do this because you might have noticed as we've read this morning that three times in the chapter the Lord addressed God as the Father. First time he just simply said, Father. Then a little later on he said, Holy Father. And then in the last two verses he addressed him as Righteous Father. Uh, each of these expressions has embodied in it an exhortation. The first one where he simply said, Father, he wanted to speak about the relationship which existed between the Father and the Son and the children, quote, whom God hath given me. When we come, of course, across, across the expression Holy Father there in verse 11, he's going to talk about then our responsibilities as part of that family and our life of holiness. The word holy meaning separate and how wonderfully we will finish in verses 25 and 26 with the term righteous father at the very point at which we started yesterday when we pointed out that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes that therein is the righteousness of God revealed. So hopefully, God willing, we will be able to conclude our remarks of where we started but with some wonderful exhortation from this 17th chapter. In this particular transparency before us, we have a heading entitled One Yahweh and His Name One. We've alluded to the significance of the name of Yahweh. We saw that in Exodus chapter 3 that the divine name was expressive of God's purpose. 
his purpose to be manifested in the Elohim, the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that as, of many, that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ and therefore you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in the first instance the name represents God's purpose. He who will be manifested in the mighty ones of Abraham. But in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 in response to Moses' appeal show me thy glory God said I will cause all my goodness to pass before thee he once again pronounced the divine name and then the attributes merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin behold therefore the goodness of God but that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. Behold therefore the severity of God, as, Romans, as Paul would say in Romans 11 verse 22. So the divine name expresses his purpose and his character. So the Lord could say, after this fashion pray thee, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Lord saw that as the most important thing to enunciate in commencing that prayer. And might we mention that when we look at that prayer, it's made up of three components. Glory to God first, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and concludes with glory to God, for thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory. And prayer for self in the middle but even that prayer for self was to the end that we might be able to serve God the better. Give us each day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so here in John 17, we've got a classic example of that model prayer. But the name is really a family name. This expression here, one Yahweh and his name one, actually comes from the ninth, chapter, ninth verse of the 14th chapter of Zechariah. You don't need to turn it up. You possibly remember that verse. In the English Bible it says, In that day the Lord shall be king over all the earth. There shall be one Lord and his name one. Now the word Lord there is in capital letters and it should be the divine name. Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. Will the Father himself come down and reign upon earth? No. He will manifest himself in his Son. But the verse then goes on to say, and there shall be one Yahweh and his name one. Now, if the word Yahweh only was expressive of the Father, was there ever a time when there was only ever one Father and his name one? And why should it be said when in Zechariah 14 it depicts the Lord Jesus Christ going forward with that multitude of saints to then say there will be one Yahweh? Well, Yahweh really is expressive of the family name. And so what we've got before us here on the chart is what we might call a family tree. But it's, it's not the normal sort of family tree. It's not the sort of family tree that goes by family descent in a chronological order. Uh, it's a family tree which is intended to depict the status of the individuals within those families. Certainly not the order 
uh, in which they were born or appeared. Nevertheless, at the top of this family tree we would have one called the father. Uh, The title that he would use of himself in the Old Testament at times is the Hebrew word ael, which means might or power. And on the other hand, his name is Yahweh, he who will be manifested in the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So right at that top of that family tree, we've got the father. That's why the prayer in John chapter 17 opens with that very simple but expressive word. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son. So the next one in the family tree, and this family tree has relationship to God's purpose in filling the earth with his glory, and to fill the earth with his glory it must be filled with a race of immortal beings, Hence, God's salvation is a very, very important part. Human salvation is a very, very important part of God's purpose. He says, manifest thy glory in me, thy son. So, the relationship between these two can be first expressed as the father to the son. If we picked up the Old Testament title, ale or power, then the son is Emmanuel. And we see ale here on the end which means God with us. If we pick up the name of Yahweh, then the word Jesus in the Greek, or better, Yahshua in the Hebrew, means Yahweh shall save. So salvation is important, isn't it? But it's secondary to the manifestation of the glory of God. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, For this cause... I bow my knees before the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and in earth is named. Find those words in Ephesians chapter 3 around about verse uh, about 15 approximately. Let's be exact. Um, You may or may not wish to turn that up necessarily at this point but let's give you that exact verse. It's in Ephesians chapter 3 and it's in, uh, in verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So on the left hand side of the chart we've got what we might call the family in heaven. Following through the idea of a father and of a son there are undoubtedly the sons of God in heaven. Job spoke about the sons of God that did rejoice at the time of creation. If we pick up this title, Ael, then in relationship to the son himself, it is Emmanuel or Ael with us. When it's related to these immortal heavenly beings, they are generally styled the Elohim. Sometimes they're called angels. We very often just very glibly and loosely call them angels but they are only called angels when they come with a message. The Bible is very specific. They're not different beings. When they come to do a work of creation, destruction or manipulation, then they're Elohim. See our word Ale coming through. Power, power with us, powerful ones. And so when they came to Lot, In Genesis chapter 19, they came as angels. 
to tell him to get out. When they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, they were described as Elohim. But when in the previous chapter, Abraham had seen them for the first time, they were simply men. So this is what we call the doctrine of God manifestation. And therefore, name and titles are important as descriptive of the work to be done, more importantly than necessarily identifying the individuals. Although we are able to look back and in most cases identify the individuals, but might we have said that when the prophecies were first written, many of the prophets would never have known who, uh, who a Charlemagne was going to be or a Constantine was going to be, but they would be able to see the symbol. Now Paul had prayed that the whole family might be united together in one. What we've got then is two stages in the development of this family upon earth. And this brings us back, if you remember, to our chart yesterday, which spoke about being born of water and born of the Spirit. Remember that one? And there was a little bit on the chart there that we just glossed over. What we said was that when we are baptised, we now become part of that family. We become children of God on earth. That is, the mortal saints in the present dispensation. The word children in the English does not necessarily bring out the importance of the word in Greek, which happens to be the word technon. It means you've now been born into that family as a child. But you remember what we said, that there was also a status. That in that family, the born first son had the first option of being called the firstborn. And I say firstborn quickly because I want that one word as distinct from born first. So firstborn son was a status. And so the word son, the Greek word huios, has more to do with status than the fact that they are part of a family. So we are children now as a result of our baptism. But Romans 8 and verse 19 says specifically that the earnest expectation of the creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now the immortal saints and they are the future Elohim. The future Elohim. Remember what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 2. Unto the angels has he not put into subjection the world to come whereof we speak. The work of the angels will in a sense be completed when the millennium opens. Doubtless there will be work for them to do, but they cannot, they cannot possibly be king priests in the age to come. Why? They could manifest God to man, but they couldn't truly represent man to God. And so they are at this present time ministering spirits ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Remember John chapter 1, the vision of Nathaniel? They're ministering spirits, but they can never be the means by which God will meet us and save us. And so just as the Lord Jesus Christ was God manifest, he was manifest in the flesh, then God willing, we shall in the future age, in relationship to the nations which will exist in the millennium, act towards them as the future Elohim. And wasn't this exactly what Genesis chapter 3 says? Yahweh Elohim of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He who will be manifested in the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so, when Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9 says that Yahweh shall be king over all the earth, that's one thing, 
but the even more beautiful statement is there will be one Yahweh and his name one. In other words, the prayer of Paul in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 3 that the whole family in heaven and in earth might be united is one way of putting it but John chapter 17 the whole prayer is the prayer that the family on earth now might understand the wonderful privilege which we've got of being part of this family and the responsibilities that go with it. If we were to divide the chapter up, we would say this. When he addresses God, I'll use the word in that rather simple, somewhat meaningless term, and I say it respectfully, the word God in English is a meaningless word, it simply means the good one, but we'll just use the word God because we all understand that. Where he simply addresses God as Father, and that goes down, I think we said, to around about, uh, uh, about verse, uh, about verse uh, 19 approximately. Now, let's get our verses. We'll go back to John. I'm still in Ephesians. When he uh, describes those words down to, no, it's about verse 11, he talks about the privilege which we have of being part of that family. When he then readdresses the Father in verse 11, by the next title, halfway through verse 11, Holy Father, he's going to talk about our responsibilities of holiness. And holiness has both positive and negative aspects to it. And then, of course, the climax in verses 25 and 26. He wants to show to us how a righteous Father has declared unto us his name. There it is in verse 26. And he climaxes with the greatest of all of the attributes of the divine character, that of love itself. Well, a little bit then about the privilege which we have. Let's pick it up from John chapter 17 and verse 6. The Lord could say, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. Now watch for this gavest given, giving, etc. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, not at this time anyway, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. Now I want to stop there for a moment because we don't want to develop the theme of holiness. But you notice how this idea of being given to the Father has been expressed all the way through there and in other places. Just as a reminder, let's go back to the two passages where it occurred earlier. This will help us to refresh our memories in John chapter 6. And I'm going to suggest that for those who might have said, well, I wonder if we're stretching it a bit far when we looked at the sign of the loaves and fishes and said that the multiplication of the loaves and fishes and the gathering up of the twelve gets full of barley loaves could really have as its interpretation that the sign was that Jesus Christ would raise from the dead 
those whom God had given him. And then when we went to John chapter 10, that what he was really saying there was that those that the Father had given him, he would keep. Let's just go back and see them again. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. John 6, verse 37. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You know, we didn't pick up that expression until we got to John 9 and 10, but I just wonder whether John, in retrospect, heard the Lord saying something there that was going to be significant later on. Remember the Pharisees cast him out? I'm not going to cast you out. I'll take you out to feed you. But that's perhaps anticipating something that John may or may not have had in mind. But it certainly came out. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Now we want to think what it means, brethren and sisters, that we've been given to the Son. Notice then the expression as it's picked up in John 10, and then we'll see how it is in, uh, in uh, John chapter 17 as we come to those uh, a particular words there. John chapter 10, we have the words, um, in, uh, I saw it there a moment ago and I've lost it. And, where is it? John chapter 10, and ah, verse 29 I'm looking at the verse all the time and I'm looking for the given that Scott gave my apologies here it is in John chapter 10 and verse 29 going back to verse 28 I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now how do we understand this expression that we've been given to the Son? Can I suggest that maybe sometimes as a community we've got a difficulty in knowing what to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound strange? The churches out there have no difficulty, although they're entirely wrong. They say he is God the Son. He's part of the Trinity. We can worship him, we can praise him, we can do all the things to him that we would do to God the Father. And we say, no, this is wrong. And sometimes, therefore, we might run a bit to the other extreme. And we, are, and we see Jesus as mere man. Now, he was a representative man, but he was also God manifest in the flesh. Can we get a balance can we recognise that this was not only the greatest man that ever lived, but he was the greatest manifestation of God? And so, shouldn't we then, at least in our thoughts and in our, our, our anticipations of the time to come, be able to make a reality of Jesus Christ? I think at times, sometimes, we can get into the uh, intricacies of the atonement and we can almost make Jesus a concept. You know, God will meet us on the basis of what Jesus Christ did. He lived, he died, he rose and he ascended. 
and on that basis God's righteousness is upheld and God can accept us. Well, as a doctrine, that's probably fairly well expressed. But it's totally clinical, isn't it? It's totally sterile. That's why in concluding that previous session, I put up that aspect of the glory of God revealed in a man and put in all those quotes from Philippians. Here's a man that humbled himself. He was a humble slave. He was a slave who was prepared to die. He was prepared to die the most ignominious death that could be invented. Look at the spirit of this man. Now, do we believe that this man is alive, vibrant and living in heaven? And I use the word man because Paul says in writing to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So even now in heaven, although he's immortal, he's an immortal man. Have we got some conception of him? What's it going to be like when in the very near future we stand in his presence? The first challenge is, are we even going to understand what he's saying to us? And I think we know that from our study on John now, don't we? Are we going to be like Nicodemus and say, I'm, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I am certain there will be some things that we may at times find difficult. But I can guarantee this, he will explain it to us. Because that will be our opportunity now for the refinement of our character. And whatever the conversation will be, it won't be in the same sense as he spoke to the Pharisees and that. It will be in a loving, kind way to bring to our attention not only the things we've done wrong, most of us are conscious of most of the things we've done wrong. And many of us feel as though we've got to carry that to the kingdom and the worry we have in standing before the judgment seat is, was I forgiven for that? You know, brethren and sisters, we've got entirely the wrong idea of the judgment seat. Entirely the wrong idea of the judgment seat. The judgment seat is not to balance up how many things we did wrong as against how many things we did right. And did we manage to pray for forgiveness for all the things we did wrong or did we forget some? That's not the judgment seat at all. The judgment seat is that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to God. And we're all going to confess the same thing. We're all going to say, I'm not worthy to be here. I've endeavoured to the best of my ability to see the weaknesses in my life. Please, Lord, tell me where I went wrong. I think I came to grips with some of these things. And there may be some things we never conquer in this life. You know, there may be some people that bring with them a problem and we don't use this as an excuse, but it can be a reality, which can become a physical problem. That maybe this side of the kingdom will never totally eradicate. And it may be it worries our, our sick. Now, I don't say we should therefore just brush it aside. But the Lord may well say, look, you spent most of your time worrying about that, and in so doing, you never addressed this big area over here. In other words, we've got sins of commission and sins of omission. So when we stand before the Lord and... At the judgment seat that I like to call the final stage in the refining and perfecting of our character, first of all, we're going to be addressed by one that we've never ever met, we've never actually heard him speak, we've never seen him. But we've got to have some conception of him and whilst, and I understand the sense in which we would say this, we are very cautious about worshipping him, about praying to him, and I'm not suggesting we do that, and even in our hymn singing at times, uh, someone might say, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with this hymn, and someone else might say they are, because partly the churches out there make him something higher than he should be, that is God the Son. But brethren and sisters, let's not go to the other extreme. 
we've got to have some perception in our mind of Jesus Christ the man so that the greatest thing we want in life is to be able to stand before him. Humbled though we will be, that when we do, we won't be arguing with him and saying, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in thy name and in thy name do many wonderful works? And he will say, but I never knew you. I never knew you. The word know there is what is called an experiential knowledge, gnosko, the relationship between two people. So whilst I am not trying to advocate that we, in our communal worship at least, start praying to Jesus or something like that, that's not what we're saying. But we must at least in our own private thoughts and concepts feel some sort of communication with that one to whom we've been given. The Father has given us to the Son. Now we studied the role of the firstborn and the firstborn son had great privileges. He received a double portion of the inheritance. He took over the family. But he also had uh, a great responsibilities and those responsibilities were to care for the younger children. Are we prepared to allow the Lord to care for us? Now the first thing he did was he prayed. And this I think might be one of the greatest challenges that's going to come to us here from John chapter 17. So we go over then to John chapter 17. Some of you may already be back there, but I was still in John 10. And we've, we've expressed the importance of understanding that, and if we just look at the chart for the sake of looking at the chart, that there is a sense in which God has given these children to that son, that that son might care for them as the good shepherd, as the firstborn son in the family. Now this is what he did before he died. He prayed for them. And the overriding prayer here is for the unity of that family. Now, brethren and sisters, the challenge to us is, are any of us doing anything to frustrate the Lord's prayer? First and foremost, when do we ever stop trying to get total unity? Unity within our group here. Unity within this country. Unity within the world. We're not going to get every brother and sister throughout the world to be able to all see the truth the same way as any one of us do. And we hear of unity movements. North America at the moment, I believe there's a very wonderful spirit abroad where people who have been separated on paper for over a hundred years ago because of something that happened back in the 1890s are 1890s are readdressing the issue and saying look is there really a difference here let's open our Bibles and get together because that's the only thing that brings unity and the Lord prayed for that dare any one of us to say no it's not worth trying and I'm not suggesting anyone here is doing that but some may are we, are we going to frustrate the Lord's prayer so unity is not just a desirable option the unity of the family of God is perhaps the most important thing we should be trying to do in life. My personal life is one thing, but it's really secondary to my involvement with you as part of the divine family. Now the next thing is, in our relationships with each other, the way we behave does have a very, very big bearing upon the unity of the household. So that's why now as the second part of this theme develops in verse 11, the Lord now, halfway through verse 11, now readdresses the Father as Holy Father. Do we understand what the word holy means? It simply means separate. 
It simply means separate. Israel was a holy nation, but they were, in the best sense of the term, very unholy. There were holy vessels. There were holy things. There were holy days. God had separated them for a special purpose. Israel was a holy nation living in a holy land. You can say the land of Israel is, is, is morally holy, but God has set it apart. Now, when we are baptised, what does God do? He separates us. He says, I no longer see you as a sinner of the Gentiles. I see you now covered in the righteousness of my son and I look upon you as something separate. That's what the word holy means. It's just that the English word holy has connotations of morality. And morality does come into it, but first and foremost when we're baptised, God separates us. He constitutes us righteous. He separates us. Now he wants to see that separation in our lives. And for many of that for many of us, that brings a big challenge. We have brethren in our part of the world. We have brethren in your part of the world. Many of you have come from all sorts of backgrounds. We know it's difficult. We know for some it takes longer. The fact of the matter is, though, we've all got to do endeavour to the best of our ability and the Father knows our limitations. He knows our problems. He doesn't expect more from us than what we are able to do, but he does expect the very best that we can do. And listen to what he says. Holy Father, keep through thine own name. Now, let's not gloss over any word. We're back to our chart. Keep through thine own name. The family name was expressive of God's purpose and God's character. Let's always keep his wonderful purpose before us and his wonderful character. So that's what the Lord can mean when he says, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. So you see, God's given us to the Lord, but we're still really God's children. It's just our older brother, the firstborn son in the family, acting in that priestly capacity, is acting on his father's behalf. Now it's a wonderful thing here because he says, verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name, those that thou gavest me. Look at the number of times he's talking about being given to the Son. You just can't miss it in this chapter. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And, you know, we can't force people to do something. Even the Lord can't force people to be righteous. And so Judas was lost because he was determined to be lost. But we read then in verse 13, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he says, I'm going to be taken away. We didn't, we didn't study John 14. We could have. Remember John 14? I pray the Father that he will send the Comforter. The Comforter which is the Spirit of Truth. And whilst I might be taken away from them, Father... Allow that spirit of truth to prevail. Yes, it comes from God's word. God's word is spirit. But spirit also means a new disposition, a new way of thinking. So he says, now I'm coming to thee. Verse 14 says, I've given them thy word. Now he says, the world hates them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You know, can it be true that each one of us can say, we are not of that world out there? There is nothing out there we desire. 
We've got to go to work because we've got to get money because we've got to eat. And the Lord knew that. And that's why he says in verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Brethren and sisters, we've got to at times make hard decisions in life. Holiness, as I said, has both positive and negative aspects. Uh, We were discussing a little later last night what Paul meant in Corinthians when he said, flee from idolatry. We're going to have enough trouble just driving down the highway and seeing advertisements out there telling us you need something more. You need a new one of these. I saw a bus once that went past and said, you owe it to the most important person in the world, yourself. The advertising world would utterly collapse if it was not able to keep before us the fact that we ought to be dissatisfied. It's making us dissatisfied so that we get a new this, that and the other thing. Now I'm not saying that our car doesn't wear out at some stage and we have to get a new one or anything else. But how many things in life do we feel we've got to get because that world out there is telling us and all they're interested in is making money. So you see, just driving down the street, how much more if we deliberately allow ourselves to go into an environment, to bring it into our lives, things which we know are not going to help us in the truth. We may say, well, I can cope with it. And maybe there's the odd thing or two we can cope with. But don't forget when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, yes, you might be able to eat that meat. You might say, well, an idol's nothing and the fact that it's been offered to an idol doesn't affect the meat. But what about brother and sister so-and-so over here? And when you eat that meat, he says, you are sinning against your brother, you are sinning against Christ. So you see, it's not simply a matter with, well, I can cope with it, but what about my example? What is the Lord demanding of us? He's demanding of us that we aim for perfection. We never aim for anything less. He says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it's only when we aim for perfection that we can therefore come before God in good conscience and say, I've failed. And in fact, the lower we aim, the less we realise we failed and the less we confess to God and the less we see the, name, the need for God's help. Now, the Lord prayed for us. Are we going to frustrate his prayer? Let's read it again. I pray not, says verse 15, that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them for the evil. They are not of this world. And by the way, the word world going through there, and it occurs a lot of times, I can see it just at a glance, I reckon about ten times on this page, it's always the word cosmos. It means this order or system of things. Cosmos. You know what sort of words we, we, we get from cosmos? We get words like the cosmopolitan and, and, and the cosmos itself. And actually a very interesting word that Peter says. And sorry, this happens to be sisters he was talking to on that occasion, but it could apply to any of us. He says, sisters, let your adorning... Do you know what the word adorning there is? It's cosmos. And what do we get from cosmos? We get cosmetics. Okay, this is not a a slap at cosmetics as such. But it's amazing, isn't it? He says, they are not of this order of things. Our little Bible study reminds us, you know, just how far this world has come from what it would be if the Lord Jesus Christ was here and we were all assembled with him as perfected saints. 
you know, it's that world out there, we'd be better off with the Assyrians. Remember where we started tonight? The Assyrians chopped our heads off and that was it because we stood up. The Babylonians said, I want to change what's in there. And we've got a world of Babylon out there. The very last article in the excellent book called Faith in the Last Days, a series of articles by Brother John Thomas, starts with the words, Come out of Babylon, my people. He says, Babylon represents every departure from the truth, not just the actual Catholic Church itself. So the Lord has prayed, keep them from the evil. He's prayed for our behalf, on our behalf. God says, I've given them to you to look after. Right back to our first study, who's looking after us? Those ministering spirits are ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. We can say humbly but confidently, we are certain they are here with us this morning. Our eyes are holden that we cannot see them. They are prepared to minister on our behalf. Dare any one of us frustrate the Lord's prayer. And so he could say in verse 17, this is the way holiness is performed positively. It's no good saying, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't do all those bad things. What we've got to do is put something good in its place. Read Ephesians 4 and 5 sometimes and see how Paul explains how we overcome sin. You don't overcome sin by concentrating on the sin. You put something better in its place. You displace it. And you make no provision for the flesh because you filled your mind with the Spirit. Filled our mind with the Spirit? We'd love to fill it with the Spirit. But even unconsciously, the other things creep in. So verse 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Bible study is not just an optional extra, it's absolutely essential. And we study the Bible for one purpose, that we might come to understand more of the mind of God, see ourselves through God's eyes and say, there's a whole lot of things I should be doing and there's a whole lot of things I shouldn't be doing, not because some law has said so or some ecclesial constitution has said so or because of any document we provided has said so, but because we want it that way, because we want to glorify God and whilst there are people out there we would dearly love to save, we hate that cosmos, that order of things. So we've got to live in it and we've got to work out what things are necessary as distinct from those things which in fact can burden us down and only become an encumbrance. You know, even our ordinary day living can be that. Just having a home, the fact that you've got to mow the lawns, the fact that you've got to clean the bathrooms, the fact that you've got to fix up the tiles on the roof. There's nothing wicked in any of those things. But you know, and I I think I said this here, if not it was a couple of days ago somewhere else, but in this country. If I said it before, just pardon me. One of our brethren from Australia went up to the Philippines and he saw the situation in which the brethren lived. Did I tell you this story? Well, I'll tell you again anyway. And he said, you know, that he really felt sympathetic for them uh, in, in the very difficult circumstances in which they were living. They had very, very little uh, convenience. And could the brethren in Australia uh, provide more for them? And this brother said, you know something, I feel more sorry for you 
because you've got more problems than we have. With all your materialism, you have a greater difficulty in combating the world than what we do. We know we've got nothing, but you don't realise what your problems are. And I thought, well, you know, and that brother came back very, very humbled because the letter to the seventh ecclesia, which could well represent the seven stages of the ecclesia down through the ages, you know, in Revelation 2 and 3, the letter to Laodicea was, the trouble with you is you're neither hot and zealous, nor are you cold, which is vigorous and vibrant, but you're lukewarm. And he says, when you drink something lukewarm, what do you do? You vomit it up. And he said, do you know something? You people make me sick. He didn't put it in those words. He said, you're neither cold nor hot, you're lukewarm and I'll spew thee out of my mouth. Could, wouldn't that be the worst thing that the Lord Jesus Christ could ever say to us? Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name, I did this and I did that. He might say, I never knew you. On the other hand, if he said, you made me sick. And that's what he says to the seventh ecclesia. And what was the seventh ecclesia saying? I'm rich, I'm increased with goods and I've got need of nothing. Is that Western society today? Western society through and through. And we don't realise the danger. He says, I counsel thee therefore to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you might be truly rich, that's faith. Anoint your eyes with eyesalve that thou mightest see and clothe yourself with white raiment. Put on the righteousness of Christ. So brethren and sisters, what I'm saying is, and very deliberately so, not because you are you, but it could be Tea Tree Gully, it could be, it could be Wichita Falls last Sunday morning, wherever we are, Western society is most deadly society which has ever been upon the face of this earth. I mean, even Sodom and Gomorrah would have been easier to handle than this because you could see it for what it is. But I think we're fast heading in that direction anyway. So, I think we've made the point, each one of us has to assess what we're going to do. It's not easy. We know it's not easy. We've got to flee from idolatry, but there is a positive side to it. So he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Now, let's complete our exhortation by basically just reading the rest of the words of John chapter 17. Because in verse 20, he now says there's going to be others, not just these people here, but in his mind's eye he could see us also today. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. So he had in mind us. He's now praying for us, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me. I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. By the way, is he just talking about the fact that he wants to be with us in the kingdom? Or did we get enough out of Christ's discourse with Nicodemus 
when the Lord said to Nicodemus, No man has ascended up to heaven, save he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, is he not telling us that he wants our minds and hearts to be with him there where he is? You know, our life is hid with Christ in God. We've been made to sit in the heavenlies. In the terms of John's writings, isn't he therefore also saying, I want them to be lifted up to my mind level? But he certainly is praying for that future. There's no doubt about that. And so it concludes with the words, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. He's declared the name. One Yahweh and his name one. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm going to conclude with a passage of scripture which actually takes us outside of the Gospel of John. But I think it explains to us in plain down to earth simple language all the beautiful things which John in such an elevated way has tried to express to us in this Gospel and it's Ephesians. It's the words of Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians is an exposition about the need for unity. Ephesians chapters 4 to 6 is the exhortation that comes from it. The first three chapters spoke about the division in the ecclesia between Jew and Gentile. Paul expounds how from the beginning there was never intended to be Jews and Gentiles. That was just part of God's purpose that came along later. And everybody said, well, he's right. Paul now says in chapter 4, well, in that case, let's see it in practice. We first of all read the first three verses. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, whether you make that word spirit there with a capital S, which was never in the Greek, meaning God and God's word, or whether you use the word spirit there to mean a disposition or frame of mind, doesn't matter because they've both got to be there. It's got to be based upon the word. If an ecclesia, for example, had, had a spirit of disunity, well, there's not much point in putting on more sports days. That's not going to... Oh, because of anything, most sport becomes so competitive it creates disunity. I'm not saying there isn't a place, by the way, for sports days and picnics. We have them. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and I enjoy them too. But it's because you can get together with brethren and sisters. It's got to be, though, the word that is going to, to do this. And we provide that word in all sorts of ways. We can have it at picnics. We can have it at social activities, memorial meetings. We're not trying to suggest we've got to live an unreal life. Not at all. But what we've got to say is, our children need games. We'll pick the sort of games that are going to help them develop certain things. I don't want to sidetrack onto this sort of thing, but there's all sorts of games we can get that can lead people back to the, the Bible and that sort of thing. And there's sort of sports that can bring us together. And there's other sports that can you throw each other around on a football field or something or other, or you, I don't know what sort of games, which don't always create a unity. So, see what I'm saying? 
we're not talking about trying to live unreal lives, but we're saying that we can provide for our physical needs in a way which will enhance our spiritual needs. So John Knowles is not saying forget all about social activities, but what he's saying is let's make sure that everything we do has as its aim that at the end of the day we're going to be better people for it and more united. So the Lord ascended to heaven and what did he leave behind? Well, some says it when he left behind the spirit gifts. Well, you can't have disembodied gifts. You've got to have people. So let's pick it up from verse 11 and we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 16 and that will be the end of our exhortation and the end of our study. And I hope it brings together those words which were right at the end of John 17. I've manifested unto them thy name and I've declared that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Here it comes. Verse 11 of Ephesians 4. What he gave to the ecclesias were some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors. Pastor, pastor is one that takes people to pasture. He's got to be a shepherd, doesn't he? And teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge, and that word knowledge there is, a, is the most powerful of the words, it's epignosis, that fuller experiential knowledge of the Son of God which brings about a mature man. It's the Christ man, it's the one man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. He's not just talking about people who preach the Trinity. He's talking about the serpent out there with all its subtlety who's trying to get through to us. I had to study a book once back in the 1950s called The Hidden Persuaders. Some of my generation might remember that. Vance Packer, he wrote other books called The Pyramid Builders and The Waste Makers. And he looked at Western society and he showed it for what it was. And in the hidden persuaders he got through to that advertising world. These so-called MR men, these motivational research people. And he says, they're studying you and they, and they see you as being there to be manipulated for the sake of money. So it's not just talking about false doctrine, but it's trying to see that we be not henceforth tossed to and fro by all of the things out there. The world is pounding us. Christ prayed, keep them from the evil. So he says, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ. So he's got this human body. It's one body. Jesus' personal is the head. It's the mind of Christ. We are the component parts of the body. Every one of us has got to make sure that there's a free flow of energy from the brain right through to every component part of our ecclesial body from whom the whole body, says verse 16, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part makes increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. And that was the word with which the Lord finished his prayer on our behalf. We trust, brethren and sisters, our studies yesterday and our exhortation today 
has helped us not just so much to understand the Gospel of John, but to see the Lord Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh, how he was able to see through the lives of others because he'd already done it in himself and overcome that in himself. May we go away better able to assess our lives, to see our lives through God's eyes and to continue to thank God for what he has done in Christ Jesus because while we aim for perfection, we know that we all come short of the glory of God but nevertheless from day to day we will endeavour, as the Apostle Paul says, we will endeavour to do all to the glory of God.